Hey, Forge family. Last week, we were in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. And podcast number 7 started with a command from Paul to the Colossians to not ever allow anyone to judge their diet or their religious expressions. Those two subheadings had roots in the law of Moses, and some of the pressure on the churches in the Lycus Valley came from the Jewish communities and their mysticism. Paul sweeps the judgments aside as mere shadows, pointing to the true substance of belonging to Christ Jesus. Then Paul took on the false teachers who delighted in fake modesty and the worship of angels, pointing out that a specific false teacher was deluded by those practices and had not held fast to Christ as head of the body. Finally, Paul speaks out against those who died with Christ in symbolic baptism, but still took account of the elemental demonic spirits. He asks why the Colossians submit themselves to religious decrees like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. See, all that self-made religion and intentional self-abasement, that's, that's the harsh, harsh treatment of the body, has no value, no strength, no authority when facing fleshly indulgence. Paul called out the false teachers for living a double life. All right, let's pray. Omniscient God, Father of heaven, who sees us and loves us, thank you, Lord, for your patient mentoring and for your holy standard. We confess we need you to help us move from the material life to the spiritual life. Thank you for what you've accomplished for us and for the power of the Holy Spirit to bring us all to maturity in Christ. All right, Forge family, grab your Colossians text, your notebook, cup of coffee, settle into the arms of Holy Spirit, who is the teacher and the comforter. Let's begin with an illustration. If you were to take a large onion and carefully peel it of its dry outer parchment-like layers, you would see a smooth surface. I believe we, like the onion, present ourselves well to the public, to church people, etc. But in reality, the onion has layers and layers beneath the surface. And so do we. And too often, we Christians have learned not to reveal the deeper layers of our lives to others. Some of us have deep wounds you know, through layers of life on our invisible side, the ones we keep turned away from prying eyes. And we have practices that are layers deep, yet to be brought out into the open for the Lord to partner with us to cleanse and heal. Last week, I commended you, Forge family. You are exemplary in your walk with God, as far as I can see, as far as I can discern. That is the point here in podcast number eight. We're going to be in Colossians chapter three, verses one to 11. You see, there are described here deeper wounds, sins, and practices that remain hidden. And Paul sets upon a course of cleansing and healing for the Colossians, and for us. 
Let's begin with verses 1 and 2. Paul uses two commands. Keep seeking and keep setting your mind. Okay? He begins with a subjunctive if clause. And it is best translated as since or assuming that it's true that you have been raised with Christ. Now, what is it that we are to be continuously seeking and continuously setting our minds on? Paul identifies it as those things which are above. In the sphere of Christ's sovereign reign over the universe that's filled with his presence and power. Colossians were a people, they were to keep on thinking about what Paul describes as the upward call in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. Further in Ephesians, Paul states that we, the followers of Jesus, those who have trusted him, were seated in the heavenlies, in the third heaven. And there, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, in Jewish tradition, Old Testament, okay, God to them was seated, and the holy angels stood alongside. Paul says Christ is seated next to God the Father, and he's sharing God's sovereign rule. We're to focus ourselves on those realities that are above, holy, right, pure, grace-filled, etc., and not focus ourselves on the things of earth that are passing away. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan wrote of a man who, when was, he was offered a crown, could only look at the ground and focus his muckrake on what was despised and filthy. Paul says, look up. To seek heaven, you have to think heaven. Now, in verse 3, it says, For you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ. At a point in time, you Colossians, you forged family members too, you were separated from your former life and everything of an evil nature. You died to sin. Your old sin nature was put to death. And now, you are dead to sinful choices, thoughts, and deeds. You were dead to the demands of the law of Moses. You were dead to the power and influence of the elemental demons, spirits, and those they use to try and influence earthly values, politics, and actions. Instead, you are in Christ. Your life in him is hidden, treasured away, con concealed, together with Christ in God. And that word, life, you know, your life in him, that life is zoe. Rich, full, and joyous. This is not that Greek word for um, bedroom, bathroom, and kitchen. It's not bios. Okay, it's zoe. It's full. Let's read verse 4. It says this. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. When Christ, who is our life, the same zoe, the same fullness, okay? When he's manifested and openly displayed, then you Colossians and you Forge Church will also be revealed, 
manifested and openly displayed with him in glory. That word glory is used two other times by Paul for heaven. So this is an eschatological prophetic end times reference. When prophecy is studied, especially, it's really clear in the Old Testament, it it often had a near-term example or fulfillment, a taste of what was yet to come, so that the people would go, that prophet is right on. And we're going to wait for the long-term fulfillment of the promise that he made. See, here in the text, I choose in this verse to honor both. Looks like this. When Christ is clearly present to work miracles, save souls, and deliver the demonized through our offered up words, prayers, songs, gestures, and commands, he shines. There's glory present, and we shine too. One night I was in Nazareth, Ethiopia. Thousands gathered in a walled park in front of a stage, and more were outside watching from rooftops and balconies and looking over the fence. When the call went out for those who needed a miracle to press forward, there was a rush, a cloud of red dust, the miasma of unwashed bodies, diesel fumes from the light generators, and sound. These people were crying out to Jesus. Our international team was sent into the crowd to begin to minister the miracle healing works and power of Jesus. I was paired with a translator, and we barely made it off the stage into the front row. The crowd was packed so tightly. We were faced with an elderly man who had been deaf and dumb from birth. I began to pray loudly so that the translator could hear me. And I called on Holy Spirit for miraculous healing to show this deaf man how much Christ loved him. There was no response. He had blank eyes. Into my mind instantly flashed the teaching I had heard about deafness that is caused and held in place by demons. Okay, big breath. Then I put my fingers into the deaf man's ears, commanded the demon of deafness to leave in Jesus' name, and the man's eyes flew open. He slammed his hands over his ears. You see, it was really loud there in front of the stage, and we were right in front of the big speakers. They were playing, they were blasting out this worship music. The translator seized this formerly deaf man and began to ask him questions. Yes, he could hear. He was struggling to speak words he had never spoken, ever. But he was understandable to the translator. The translator seized him and lifted, shoved him off, lifted him, shoved him, got him on the stage and followed him up so that he could give testimony to his miracle. I stood there amazed. I was so thankful. That man's face shone bright. But now I'd lost my translator. I turned back back toward the crowd, and and they were looking at me. (laughs) They began to shift and press toward me. A tall man in a red sweatshirt was pushing and struggling to get to me. His face was a rictus of pain. His right arm was hanging limp, and when he was jostled, he gasped in pain. 
When he got to me, his face was covered in sweat. His eyes were dilated. He, he looked to me like he was in shock. He pointed to his right shoulder, and I gently reached up and just, just barely touched his collarbone. It was broken. Either a green stick break or a compound break, but I couldn't see any blood on the sweatshirt. The bone was sharply pushing up the sweatshirt. I looked him in the eyes, and I just locked on him. And I held my gaze there. I prayed in the name of Jesus for instant bone repair for his right clavicle to show him how much Jesus loved him. And then I gently put my fingertips on the broken bone and pressed it down, and it went down and down and down and locked I stepped back. The man's eyes got really big. He started to shout, Jesu, 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 pogoing up and down, pistoning his right arm up and down, shouting that Jesus had healed him. Both of us were laughing when he hugged me. His face shone. And he reached into the crowd to bring another, then another, and then another to be healed. Jesus was manifested and his joy was pouring out of me so yes when jesus returns for his church the bride of christ he and we shall be glorified but while we wait welcome his presence and shine for jesus let's read verse five Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Okay. Paul says, put to death. It's an, imper it's an imperative command. You treat your earthly body as dead to immorality. The Greek word is porneion. We get our word pornography from that root. In this case, porneion refers to gross moral filth. Next, we're to render dead any connection you have to uncleanness. And that refers to lustful, luxurious, profligate living. This term is wider than physical immorality. It, it includes lurid imaginations, speech, and foul deeds. It also refers to the general re rejection, as if you backhanded away the holiness of God. Thirdly, he says to kill outright any passion, any depraved sexual excesses, the essence of that word. And the word evil desires encompasses wicked, rapacious lust and cravings. Fifthly, covetousness speaks of greed, a desire for more. It's driven by darkness, more material things. This latter ungodly behavior and attitude can be seen as the true religion of multitudes of Christians today. That needs to die too. Let me uh, read a little bit of what Kent Hughes says here. He said, what makes the situation even worse is the amazing human capacity for self-delusion in respect to sensuality. I've known professing Bible-carrying Christians 
who talked sensitively about theology and serious issues, and yet were adulterous and even incestuous. I've known Christian workers who were fundamentalists at work. They said all the right promises and the right principles, and they were cable TV voyeurs at home. Even more tragic, the delusion is so deep that they can see no inconsistency in their behavior. See, what you value, what you worship, what you will not yield to Jesus becomes idolatry. Verse 6. When those, those five of that list, immorality, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, are loosed and practiced, then the wrath of God comes. Verse 7 points out that that list of profound evil and sin, you Colossians once were living in that. You lived the lives of good, healthy pagans, empowered by darkness. But now, verse 8, but now Paul highlights the shift that has come. Now that your lives, you Colossians, you people from Forge, now that your lives have been raised from death with Christ, now that you're seeking what is above, now that you have put to death, disempowered and distanced yourself from that list of vices, now put these other internally driven, fleshly driven behaviors aside. Literally strip them off, lay them aside, abandon them. First, the word is anger. This is a Greek word that, has refer, that refers to abiding, settled, habitual anger. And it often has, comes with a focus on revenge. Secondly, wrath. That's descriptive of boiling agitation, quick temper, violent anger. Third, malice. Having a malign attitude of planned evil in mind, a desire to injure, and includes depravity and wickedness. Now, in the book of Esther, we, we get to see Haman reveling in his preparation for a gallows on which to hang Mordecai. That's malice. Fourth, blasphemy. This is injurious speech, slander, gross damage to another's reputation, their life, their job, their marriage, etc. Fifth, filthy communication. That would be of someone with a foul mouth. Abusive, obscene speech. Jesus said, out of the mouth comes the heart. So it isn't just about the mouth, okay? It's about the heart. Paul continues in verse 9, and he adds number 6 here, lying to one another. Lying is a great sin against God. In it, we may be misrepresenting the truth, twisting facts, projecting untrue images, deliberately misleading another with false information. And then there's deceit and fabrication. When we use hyperbole, when we embroider the facts, then our statements are no longer true. Remember Acts chapter 5 and the characters Ananias and Sapphira who lied to Holy Spirit. 
Okay, be sobered and corrected by that passage. The rest of verse 9 speaks of sloughing, of laying aside our old self and its evil practices. Clarence McCarthy, as a writer, has included uh, a, bit of, a bit of a story about Jonathan Edwards. He was the third president of Princeton University and America's greatest thinker. But Jonathan Edwards had a daughter with an ungovernable temper. As so often the case, is the case, the problem was not known to the outside world. Meaning, outside of the family. A young man fell in love with this daughter and sought her hand in marriage. You can't have her, was the abrupt answer of Jonathan Edwards. But I love her, the young man replied. You can't have her said Edwards. But she loves me, replied the young man. Again, Edwards said, you can't have her. Why? said the young man. Because she's not worthy of you. But, the young man asked, she's a Christian, is she not? Yes, she is a Christian. But the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. Verse 10 says, You Colossians, you've laid aside the old man, the old self, and you've put on the new man, the new self, in which are great resources and power to be shucked of this anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, and lying. When the new man was put on, immediately the power of the resurrection began to download true knowledge, a full and perfect knowledge in which you are constantly being renewed. You're being updated. That's another way to put it. That true knowledge is beginning to make of you an exact copy. Greek word is icon. An exact replica, an exact appearance of the one who created you. All right, let's read verse 11. <clears throat> A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. Such was this renewal of the Colossians that no longer are there to be any religious rites to observe, no longer any intellectual heights or judgments to aspire to, no longer any social caste or class distinctions. Christ has obliterated master and slave, male and female, Gentile and Jew, freeborn and slave, barbarian and, and patrician. Christ substitutes the word brother as the descriptor, for he is all and in all. All right, Forge family. Now, how did Paul 
No, these evil things were present in, in some remaining forms in the lives of the Colossians. Well, number one, he was a man like we are. He was redeemed from his own sin. To, in second, um, he had planted churches all over Asia Minor. He knew the elements of the common life of Gentiles and Jews. He had been present with them by Holy Spirit and saw the residue of their former lives. Having blessed the Colossians, encouraged them, instructed them, and reproved them, now Paul calls out to them to kill the old life once and for all by the power of the blood of Jesus. Let's go back to the onion illustration, family. Uh, the list of sins and vices above may not be yours, but they may have been active in your previous generations. And suddenly, whoops, where did that come from? Remember the layers of the onion? The Lord wants all those layers to be cleansed, made clean, made whole, healed. So if you discover a blighted layer, a place of rot and pain, don't hide behind the smooth exterior, smiling while you fake it. Call on heaven for help and invite a brother or a sister or a team to walk with you to help you be accountable in your restoration process of putting off the old and putting on the new. Let's pray. Mighty Jesus, crucified, risen, ascended, and reigning at the Father's right hand, you alone supplied the way to overcome all our deep layers of sin, flagrant and subtle, known and yet unknown. You washed us clean, but you now expect us to learn to come to be cleansed and forgiven for our faults on the journey. We need Holy Spirit alongside and your power within us. We want to be those who put on the new man and the new woman. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, Forge family. We'll be together soon. I love you.